the ark came to rest there. Now, you remember the ark of the covenant, the box whose design God had given himself, and it had a prominent place within the tabernacle or the tent of meeting as it moved along in the wilderness as God's people wandered there. And then hundreds of years later, David has brought the ark back to the city of Jerusalem to rest there. And so it's saying here, and then David put people in charge of the music in the house of the Lord. They ministered with music before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. They performed their duties according to the regulations that were laid down for them. And it goes on to say, here are the men who served together with their sons from the Kohathites, Heman, the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. So Heman, named as the author of Psalm 88, is the leader of the band, and he's also related to Samuel. He's the grandson of Samuel the prophet. And it goes on to say that he's a descendant of Korah and of Levi. Here are the men who served together with their sons, from the Kohathites, Heman, the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Korah, and then as the genealogy goes on, it goes down to the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. And so you see he's from the Levitical clan or family of Kohath, whose descendants then are called the Kohathites, and that included Korah, as we'll see in a bit. First Chronicles chapter 6 goes on to say the band included Heman's associate, Asaph, who served at his right hand, the son of Gershon, the son of Levi. So Asaph too traces his lineage back to Levi, which is important because that indeed was the tribe of Israel that was charged and privileged with leading worship in the service of the Lord and before his people. So there's Heman, there's Asaph, and then there is Ethan, First Chronicles 6. From their associates, the Merarites were at his left hand, Ethan, the son of Merari, the son of Levi. So they are all three descendants of Levi, but three different families, Heman from Kohath, Asaph from Gershon, and Ethan from Merari. And so they are sometimes called the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merariites. Now let me just pause for a moment and say, there's a kind of itis that we catch from <laughs> reading the Old Testament about all of the ites, and I know that that can become problematic, and it's hard to keep everyone straight, but please try to stay with it as, as best you can. So Heman and Asaph and Ethan were, in modern terminology, worship leaders. They led the people of Israel in singing praise and lament to their God. Now, I mentioned especially Korah in the line of Heman as someone who's important. After all, the sons of Korah are who Heman led and organized, and they're named for his ancestor Korah. One author tells Korah's story as follows. It begins with the Israelites of Moses' time as they journeyed through the wilderness just after leaving Egypt. 
God set aside the Levites for full-time service to him. They were ordained to take care of the tabernacle and all of its implements, as well as the Ark of the Covenant. Only the descendants of Aaron, however, were allowed to serve as priests. The three sons of Levi were Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. The Gershonites were responsible for the care of the tabernacle and tent, its coverings, the curtain at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, and the ropes and everything related to their use. The Merarites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, its posts, bases, all its equipment and everything related to their use as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes. The Kohathites were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. They were responsible for the care of the ark, the furniture, the the table, the lampstand, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministering, the curtain, and everything related to their use. Unlike the Gershonites and Merarites, who were allowed to transport the items under their care on carts, the Kohathites had to carry their items. The holy things of the tabernacle, they had to carry them on their shoulders. They had the arduous burden of transporting these items from place to place as the camp moved, but they were not allowed to actually touch the items or they would die. The priests had to wrap the sacred objects in special coverings before they were transported. Now, this is important. Many of the Kohathites began to disdain this task and to covet the role of the priest. And Korah was the grandson of Kohath. And he began to run with another group of malcontents. In pride, they roused a group of 250 men together to challenge the right of Moses and Aaron to the priesthood. Moses summoned the rebellious men to stand before God and to burn incense before him. God warned Moses to let the assembly know to get away from Korah and his fellow rebels, and then a remarkable and terrifying event happened. The Bible says, Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. He goes on, as soon as he finished saying all this, The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, All of the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. God is realistic about the past. He accurately describes the past 
and the sin that is part of the past of these men who wrote these psalms that we are going to be considering over the next few weeks. God accurately describes the past, but thankfully, I say in your outline, He also graciously redeems it. Because although this episode clearly marked the end of Korah, we discover that Korah's sons, perhaps too young to understand their father's uprising or maybe too cognizant of God's authority to join in the result, they were spared. Here's what Numbers 26 says, Korah's followers rebelled against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah, whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men. And they served as a warning sign. The line of Korah, however, did not die out. God judged those who turned against him in act of rebellion, rebellion, and he used that episode as a warning, and it purified his people. And he still had a purpose and a plan for even the line of Korah. The author of the article that I mentioned earlier says, After seven successive generations, the prophet Samuel arose from the line of Korah, as we have seen. The Korahites became doorkeepers and custodians for the tabernacle. One of the group of the Korahites joined King David in various military exploits and won the reputation of being expert warriors. However, the most remarkable thing to note about the sons of Korah is that during the time of King David, they became the great leaders in choral and orchestral music in the, in the tabernacle. Heman, the Korahite, had a place of great importance as a singer, along with Asaph, a Gershonite, and Ethan, a Merorite. These individuals played an important role in the thanksgiving services and the pageantry when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. David formed an elaborate organization for song, instrumental music, and prophesying through these men. When the tent that was the tabernacle was brought to Jerusalem as a permanent home, where later Solomon would build the temple, we're told in 1 Chronicles 16 that Heman, Asaph, and Ethan are there leading in musical praise, and that they sang songs that are listed there in that passage, 1 Chronicles 16, and based on what it says there, it appears that some of their favorite cover songs were from the book of Psalms that we'll get to later, Psalms 96 and 105 and 106 had already been written even though they appear later in our book of Psalms. And we see these brothers, these cousins, at their full strength in 1 Chronicles 25, and there it lists all of Heman's 14 sons, where it says, according to the promise of God to exalt him, he was given this fruit of his loins. And there in 1 Chronicles 25, Heman is called a seer, and the passage speaks about the work of this family band in leading music for the to-be-built temple. We're told there, Asaph, Ethan and Heman were under the supervision of the king, along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord, they numbered 288. Now here these people are, 
hundreds of years after the rebellion of their ancestor Korah. And God is not only using them, but thanks be to God, he is using their progeny as well. And there are 288. Friends, that's a serious choir and orchestra. And then when the temple is completed, these three show up again to usher the Ark of the Covenant in with music and singing. And as they played, the Bible says what Pastor Larry read for us earlier from 2 Chronicles 5, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So these faithful ministers had a front row seat to the divine manifestation of God's glory in his holy temple. It's no wonder then that their wisdom was considered second only to Solomon during Solomon's peak. Now, many of you know that the Bible refers to Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived. And yet notice whose names show up with him in 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon was wiser than anyone else. And then the author of 1 Kings felt it necessary to point out, and I'm talking about even wiser than Ethan. (laughs) And even wiser than Heman. And his, Solomon's, fame spread to all the surrounding nations. One article goes on to say, the story of these psalm-writing Levite cousins doesn't end with their expiration. Second Chronicles 29 tells us that their descendants were used by King Hezekiah in the great cleansing of the temple to restore pure, pure worship to Israel. Likewise, their descendants played a prominent role in Josiah's reformation later as well. God's kind hand was upon the houses of these three cousins to continue using them for his exaltation. After the return from the Babylonian exile, the descendants of these three are still helping Israel bring praise to their God. The first group to return to the land including 120, included 128 of the sons of Asaph who were appointed to lead singing. At the groundbreaking ceremony for the new temple, Solomon's, you remember, had been destroyed by the Babylonians and they were taken into captivity. But then when they returned, they rebuilt a, a new temple and at the groundbreaking ceremony for that, these men repeated the refrain of their father's going back hundreds of years earlier at the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Once the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt under Nehemiah, the descendants of Asaph and Ethan offered to live in the city and continue to lead the thanksgiving. And why? Why did they continue in this work? Nehemiah tells us. For, because, long ago, In the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. 600 years later, the people of God still looked back to the ministry of Heman and Ethan and Asaph as a high watermark for the musical worship of Israel, seeking to recapture that glory. Now, friends, there are all kinds of lessons and applications for us here. But one of them for us is this. What we do now and how we do it 
matters later. Not only matters later, matters for eternity. How you, as an individual, before those who are watching you, carry out your walk with the Lord and your ministry for the Lord affects people not only now, but later and for eternity. How we collectively, as God's church, carry out His work makes its mark on the next generation and the generation after. And only eternity will tell what God does with the faithfulness of His people. It's the reason, I'm convinced, that when believers depart and are with the Lord, that we do not stand before the judgment seat of Christ right away, but rather the judgment seat of Christ occurs at the end of the age. And the reason I believe that's the case is because there are ripple effects to what we do that carry out from generation to generation. And then at the end of the age, all of that culminated God will show us. And God will show us what a faithful life has produced, a faithful life that in His grace, He is the one who ultimately produced it as He did in the lives of these. So friends, I encourage you as I encourage myself as a father, as a pastor, to take your role seriously before others. It lives on. It lives on for good or for ill, and it lives on for generations and into eternity. God is realistic about the past. Thankfully, He gives an accurate presentation, but He redeems it. And then I say in your outline, God is realistic about the present. Some of the Psalms in this book three are about present ruin from other nations. So when it says the first 11 from Psalm 73 to 83 are Psalms of Asaph, these are sometimes written by descendants of Asaph who functioned in his place. And so, for example, look at Psalm 74, if you would. Psalm 74 and verse 7. It says, they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. So see, this would be after then. This would be the Babylonians coming and destroying the temple. This is a few hundred years after the time of David and the original Asaph. And so these are now descendants of Asaph writing this. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. Verse 8, they said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? And this is the kind of lament that you see in an accurate picture of living for the true and living God in a fallen world. As I said, it's speaking of the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., 400 years after the time of King David and Heman and Asaph and Ethan. And now their descendants are writing psalms, psalms that speak of present distress. 
Over and over in Scripture, God's people are called to remember because there is new trouble for each generation. And it's easy to think that that new trouble, that new present trouble in our time is unprecedented. And so we despair regarding God's intentions. But unlike in the financial world, with our Lord, past performance is a guarantee of future results. God keeps his promises. God never abandons his people in their difficulties. Deuteronomy 31, as God's people are ready to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land, led now not by Moses, but his successor, Joshua, the Lord says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of the opposition. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that he will never leave you nor forsake you is quoted in your New Testament in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, but was first spoken when God's people went into the promised land. 1,500 years later, the writer of Hebrews is quoting it as still applicable that God will never leave you nor forsake you in whatever you've got going on. And it's still, friends, just as relevant for us today, 3,500 years after it was written. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So God is realistic about the past. He's realistic about the present. And we have the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with us every moment of every day. Who, before he ascended back to the Father, the night before he died, said, you'll remember in John chapter 14, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he went on in those next four chapters from John 14 through 17. All on one night, the night before he was crucified, in what's called the upper room discourse, Jesus said, I will not leave you without a comforter. I will send you the Holy Spirit, and he has done that very thing for every man, woman, and child who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence is with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So God is realistic about the past, the present, and I suppose you can guess the last blank. He's realistic about the future. In the midst of the present darkness that the sons of Korah and Heman and Esaph and Ethan were experiencing, there is that solitary psalm from King David included in this collection, in this third book, and it is, as I said, also dark. But the very inclusion of David is a reminder that God will keep his promises for the future. Because so much of what the Psalms say go back to that introductory Psalm in Psalm number 2 and the introduction of conflict between the nation Israel and other nations. And the hope of all of that goes back still further to the covenant that God made with King David that says this. David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established 
forever. By including a psalm of David in the midst of the misery of the present, God is causing them to still look to the future. And God is saying, forgive the grammar, there ain't nothing and no one who can thwart my plans for my people. They will go forward. David's throne will be established and it will last forever. So despite the fact, as we are going to see in the coming weeks, that nations are having their heyday, it is only temporary. And I say that to you, brothers and sisters, in our day. Evil is on the march. We're tempted to be afraid. It will not win. Jesus Christ will prevail. If you are attached to him, you are on the winning side. You need not despair. You need not be afraid. And in fact, one of the greatest witnesses that we can have to an onlooking world in the midst of this darkness is to be not afraid. The number one command, most often given command throughout Scripture, do not fear. So Paul Tripp said some years ago, because of all of this, because of the way Scripture lays out this realistic view of life in a fallen world, and we all have a past, and yet God in His grace redeems that past in our individual lives, in those who have gone before us in our lineage, as we saw with these men, in a fallen world with its present distress and difficulty, and we are tempted to despair. And the Bible shows this over and over, and yet gives us reminders of the fact that God's on the throne, God's in control, He fulfills His promises, and He will do that in the lives of His people. But because you have both of those, realism about life in a fallen world, promises about what God is accomplishing and will accomplish, Paul Tripp says, we are to be the saddest, most celebrant people in the world. You see what he's saying? There is a sadness because of life in a fallen world. There's a sadness because of what we see around us. There's a sadness that the bedrock of human society is being chipped away, and some are seeking to obliterate it in things like the family that God ordained. It's attacked. His church is being attacked. The Bible says evil men will grow worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. And so we are sad as we, we look at that. We're sad as we look at the effects of sin in our own lives and our ongoing temptation toward it. But at the same time, God is reminding us over and over in Scripture Yes, it's sad. Yes, I'm realistic about it. Yes, I tell you the truth about it. But that's all to point you to the solution. And I'm the solution, and you should regularly celebrate the fact that you have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, you need, like I need, the means of grace that God offers us on a regular basis in order to sustain us in life in a fallen world. And one of those main means of grace is gathering. <laughs> like we're doing here, seeing that, you know what, I'm not alone. 
And as in the days of Elijah, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are others who believe what I do. There are others who are struggling like I do, but who will pray for me and for whom I can pray, and we can uphold one another. God has not left us, and God has indeed left us with the means of grace in order to move us forward. Avail yourselves of them. Here's your take-home truth. God's plan for his people moves forward amidst the evil of his enemies. We're going to bow and pray. I ask you as we do, are you on the winning side because you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of David, who is at the right hand of the Father, and who is going to return, just as they in the book of Psalms look forward to his first coming, we look forward to his second coming now. And he is going to sit on that throne of David, and he is going to defeat his enemies, but we are only on the winning side if we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you gain that? Realize that you're a sinner. That you in your life have contributed to the fallenness that is part of this world, that causes the despair. You not only experience it from others, we all as sinners contribute to it. Realize that you're a sinner. Recognize, though, that Jesus Christ is the remedy. He died to pay the penalty for your sin and repent. Lord, I'm going to go your way, no longer go my way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow and pray, just a moment, from your heart to God, in your own words, no magic formula, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I dwell amongst other fallen people. And I realize that we have all rebelled against you. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only solution to my rescue, to rescue me from the penalty of my sin, to save me. So I ask you to apply what he has done on the cross to me. Forgive me, and I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you once again for the blessing of being before you and with your people. We thank you for recording these words for us, preserved for us, millennia later, so that we can be reminded that you work through the past, even the distant past, and you are redeeming people, that there, that there are things that have happened in our lineage, each of us here, that we know nothing about. And that you use faithfulness in the life of some to bring us to where we are today. And so, Lord, thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you for challenging us with that, that we then need to be faithful in our day for the sake of those who look on us now and will be affected in the future. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Of David and who has come to accomplish what none of his predecessors could and he is our king and every knee will bow before him Lord we ask you to move on the hearts of some right now to bow their hearts before you now so that it's not forced in the future but is rather voluntarily done out of a heart that has come to love you we ask you to draw some to yourself, and all of this redounds to your glory 
and we will be careful to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for our closing song. Back in here for our second hour at 11.15. Look forward to seeing you then.